you didn't hear, the question that was asked to Chris was, could we send food or, or anything else? Uh, the reason we want to send money, uh, one of the primary ways is because uh, the way shipping is right now, a lot of things don't go straight to Ukraine. They come through other countries. And if they're going through other countries, they might get held up and not actually get to uh, refugees and to the, the place that we want to, to want uh, the money to be designated towards. And so the best thing to do, especially in the situation we have, where we actually know someone who's going to be going there and has people on the ground, uh, being able to hand them the money and we then know 100% of the funds will be getting to where it is going. And so in case you didn't hear that question that was asked on the side, uh, if you have your Bibles, so I hope you do, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Some of you thought we would never be here. Uh, we are now on the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've been spending our time walking through each and every chapter, each and every verse, and now we are on chapter 13. Now, the first 12 chapters, the author has explained and exalted the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He wants us to know that there is no hope, there's no life, that there's no salvation in any religion that does not see Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to earth to stand in our place so he would die for our sins and that we could be forgiven and have everlasting life with God. He wants us to know that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He wants us to know that Jesus is our perfect priest, that he is the one who gives us grace every single day so that we can run the race of faith. Uh, what he wants us to know is that the entire Christian life is about Jesus. And so, so we, we can then say, so what does it look like for someone who is supremely satisfied in Christ? What does their life look like? How would we describe their life? What would they do? And that's the question that chapter 13 answers. Uh, this chapter shows what it looks like to live a life that worships and exalts Jesus Christ. And so if our lives are going to give glory to God, if our lives are going to show the world the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus, if we're going to live worthy lives of the gospel and make disciples who know that Jesus is one who supremely satisfies them, then we need to know the message of chapter 13. And so here's, uh, here's the main point this morning. We are saved to display God's glory through radical acts of love. The entire message is that as Christians, love is what characterizes our life. Love is how we worship God. If you've experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ, then his love is now in us that we would demonstrate and show love to others. And so with that, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And I want to go ahead and encourage you to stand and we'll read this passage together. Hebrews 13 one through six. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now and we humbly sit under your word, the word that you have given us, your word that is inerrant and infallible, inspired by your spirit for the purpose of giving us life, of correcting us, of training us, of equipping us for every good work that you would have us do. And Lord, I pray that we today, as believers, would have a clear understanding of what your Spirit is doing in our life and what it means for us to be a Christian. God, I pray that we would grow in our love for Jesus, and as we do that, that we would grow in our love for one another, that with every action, every thought, with every word that we speak, it would be done in love for your glory. God, may we live lives of worship as we love one another. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So what I want to do is kind of just walk through several questions today that's going to help us understand this text. And so number one, the first question is, is what is acceptable worship? And the reason I ask that question is because that's how chapter 12 ends. And so uh, chapter 12 kind of frames and prepares us for how we get into chapter 13. So if you look at chapter 12, verse 28, the author, right after he has talked about the fact that we have been given an unshakable kingdom, and that we are citizens in this kingdom, our names are written in this kingdom, this is where we will live for all time, our salvation is secure, our joy is, is magnified in this kingdom, and he says it is unshakable, so therefore, in Hebrews 12, 28, he says, on the basis of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, let us offer to God acceptable, re- acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then so right after he says, our lives or to give acceptable worship to God. He then goes into chapter 13, and he says, let brotherly love continue. And throughout the rest of our verses, it's all about love, and really all of chapter 13 is about how we live a life of love. The Christian church is to be characterized by love. And this shouldn't come as a shock to any one of us. If you know your Bibles, if you've read, especially through the New Testament, the commands are clear. Uh, for example, Jesus said, In John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then get this, by this, meaning by this love, by the fact that you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the defining quality and characteristic of a believer. 1 John 3, verse 11, it says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows how radical this love is. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which means there's not people groups that we say, we love these ones, but we don't love these ones. He says, even love your enemies. In the Old Testament, we see that God's people are to be characterized by love. If you go to the Ten Commandments, it could be broken up into two tables. Commandments 1 through 4, love God. Commandments 6 through 10, on how we love one another. If you are a Christian, we're called to live lives of love. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, theologian and pastor, he wrote this, evangelism is a calling, but not the first calling, 
Building congregations is a calling, but not the first calling. A Christian's first call is to return to the first commandment, love God. Love the brotherhood, and then to love one's neighbor as himself. His whole point, and what we have here is the point of the author in Hebrews and the New Testament, is that as Christians, everything that we do is to be done in love. Now that could bring up another question, so how can we live a life of love? It's one thing to say we're to be loving, but how is it that this is actually to be possible? Why is it that we can say Christians must be characterized by love? Like this is a non-negotiable. You can't be a Christian and not love. So why? Why can, why can we say that? Let me give two reasons. Number one, because God is love. We have to start there. God is love. If you go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, twice we read, God is love. That does not mean God is loving. Because if God is loving, then that means at times he's loving, at times he's other things, right? But God is love, which means therefore every single action, word, thought that he has is one of love. Everything he does is loving. Before God created, he eternally existed in love. The Father perfectly loved the Son. The Son perfectly loved the Father. The Spirit carried forth this love back and forth between them. He's existed in infinitely perfect abundance of love. And if you think about it, even after we sinned, God has, uh, God has demonstrated his love. For what did he do? He sends his son Jesus Christ out of love. In fact, this is what 1 John chapter 4 says. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in fact, if you've been with us through the book of Hebrews, the first ten and a half chapters of Hebrews basically unpacks 1 John 4, 9 and 10. That is what the first ten and a half chapters of Hebrews is doing. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes as the manifestation of God's love on this earth, that in love... He would take your sins and my sins and die on the cross so we could be saved and forgiven and justified and adopted. It's because of God's love, we're told in Hebrews 10, 18. Not only are we forgiven, but that he forgets our sins for all time. So we have that God is love. He's eternally existed in love. He created out of love. He redeems out of love. So that's reason number one that we live a life of love is because our God is love. But how does that connect to you and me? How does that mean then that because he is love that then we who follow him are to be characterized by love? Point number two then is we have been born of God. And we need to know that. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, says we have been made spiritually new. We have been spiritually born again. 1 John 4, 7 says this, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To be saved, 
means you've experienced a, a second birth, a spiritual birth. That you've been made spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. You have been made new. And so just as you and I, we resemble in appearance and attitude our earthly parents. So now because we've been born of God in 1 John 3, we'll say that his seed literally dwells within us. We now resemble the God of love who has saved us. Listen to what Romans 5, 5 says. This is one of my favorite passages on love. It says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been, who has been given to us. So one of the roles the Holy Spirit has, and, and right now if you're a believer, he is pouring forth the infinitely pure, immeasurably great love of God in your heart. Do you know that? Like that's, that's what he's doing in you. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within you, which is when you experience your new birth. You experience that. It's that when that happened, that's when you saw Jesus as beautiful and you believed in him. So the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And at every moment, he's pouring forth God's love into your heart. And so if you think of it this way, a little bit later today, we'll all be holding these little communion cups, Right? These little communion cups are like this big, I don't know, one ounce, two ounce, I don't know how many ounces they are, uh, but they're small. So think of that as your heart. And, and, and so that is what God's love is being poured into. And then think of like Niagara Falls as the Holy Spirit who dwells in you continuously pouring forth the immeasurably great love of God in you. You're not only filled, you're overflowing constantly with the love of God. That's why we are loving. It's because the God of love dwells in us that we would love as God has loved in us. And what this means is we don't love other people because they're lovable. Like, do you get that? Like, we don't love them because they're lovable. We don't love them because we seek reciprocation. We don't love others because they met some standard or hidden expectation that we have that they must meet in order to win our love. We love them because the infinitely great God of love has loved us and now dwells in us that his love would flow out of us into the lives of others. Which means if you've trusted in Jesus, then you've been saved by the God of love that you would display his love in everything that you do. So that's how we get to our text. So he, he's telling us, now, we love. And so there's no excuses then. If you are a believer, we can't say, well, but, you know, you don't really understand me. No, the God of love, who is love, dwells in you. And his Holy Spirit right now is pouring forth the immeasurably great, infinite, rich love of God so you would love. So then that brings up the question, so who do we love? And we're going to see that there's five people that we're called to love. Number one, siblings. Everyone loves this one, right? Oh, brothers and sisters. Look at verse one. It says, let brotherly love continue. Now this refers to the church. Throughout the Bible, we see that God's people are to love all people, but especially we are called to love the church. Galatians 6, 9 and 10 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So there it is. We do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
Just as you would say we prioritize the loving of our earthly family, so the Bible says we prioritize our spiritual family. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21 says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. In fact, the majority of times in the New Testament when we are called to love one another, the love is to be directed towards believers. If you follow the context, majority of the time, the focus is on how we love other believers. Not, again, that we don't love those outside the church, but we prioritize specifically those within the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. The litmus test of every Christian is that we love those who believe in God. When God has saved us, he adopted us into his eternal family, which is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 12, verse 50. So, so some people come to Jesus and says, hey, your, your family's here. Hey, your family's here. Stop talking to these people and go prioritize your family because your brothers and sisters, they're here now. And so what does Jesus say? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He radically transforms who we as believers are to think and to regard as family. If you look, like just right now to your right and to your left, like go ahead, like everyone, movement, look right, look left. Some of you didn't do it. All right, we'll do it again. Now, if you're on the road, if you're on the ends, just look in one direction, I know. But look to the right, look to the left. You see the people who are in this room. This is your eternal spiritual family. Like this is your family. We are not held together by common ancestry. Our union is not based upon hobbies, upon interests, upon the fact that we all have similar personalities. Rather, we're held together by the infinitely pure and precious blood of Christ. Your bond with the family of God is far stronger than any familial relationship you can possibly have. And we need to know that. Earthly families can be divided. Earthly families can be broken and forever separated. But ultimately, the family of God is everlasting, has been formed and secured by the everlasting power of God. Do you know that? Well, you might not live near your earthly family. Like, I know we have a lot of military here, so you're always kind of on the move and never near family. My wife and I, we've never lived near family. When we lived in Michigan, the closest we were were 950 miles. Now we're 750 miles from the closest of family. But this is family. Every time, everywhere where there is a church, you are surrounded by the, blood, by the blood of Christ and his family. Do you know that? Every time we gather, whether on a Sunday morning or other times throughout the week, we're gathering together as family. So that means we don't come so that we observe. We don't come to keep arms distance. We don't come to spectate. You know, when you go into a stranger's house, you're kind of, you know, you walk uh, differently than when you walk in your own house. You know, when you, when, you, when you sit at your table, you sit differently than when you sit at the stranger's table. You're always sitting, like, upright. You know, really good posture. You always ask things really nicely. Always say please. But when you're in your house with your family, you're more laid back. You, you just are who you are. That's how we're to be with one another all the time. 
We are family, which means, so we come together. We're not acting distant when we come. We don't come late and leave early. We come early and stay late because this is family. And our mission on every Sunday, every table group, and every gathering that we have is how do we encourage family? How do we love family? So a couple questions then. How are you loving the church on Sundays? Just think through that. How are you loving the church? How are you actively coming with the purpose of not only being blessed, which hopefully we all are, but to be a blessing to others and encourage others? How are you loving the church throughout the week? How are you coming alongside brothers and sisters? This is one reason we do table groups. I encourage you, talk to Ozan, talk to Steve about table groups. Table groups is a means in which we gather together on a regular basis as family for the purpose of encouraging, for the purpose of spurring one another on, for the purpose of praying for one another, the purpose of meeting one another's needs. One thing we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews is that It is through the encouragement of the family of God that we run the race of faith. No one is called to run by themselves. We need family. We require it. It is a a means of grace that God has given so that we would run and be faithful to him. So that's number one. We're called to love our siblings, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we could easily spend, I think, a sermon on each and every one of these, uh, but we'll just continue to go. Number two, we love strangers. Look at verse two. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. Hospitality is a major theme that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a massive theme all throughout the Bible. In the ancient world, traveling was dangerous. Inns and and hotels were few. So when you traveled, you stayed in people's houses. Opening up one's house was essential to ministry. In fact, to emphasize the importance of hospitality, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, or if you go to Titus chapter 1, and you look at the qualifications for an elder, no elder is qualified to shepherd the people of God unless he practices hospitality. Mindy, like that, that should undergird the importance of this. This isn't like, oh, be nice to each other, love others, and if you have time, be hospitable. And we should understand that the qualifications of an elder are really the descriptions of what it is to be a Christian. And no one is qualified. You should never, ever, ever affirm an elder in this church if he doesn't open his house and practice hospitality. Never affirm them. Ever. Can't say it enough. Like, never do that. All throughout the Bible, we see hospitality is essential. In fact, in order for us to evaluate our own hospitality, one commentator asked this question, and I just thought it was really good. It stayed with me. And the question is, how many people could describe the inside of your house? Just think through that. How many people could describe the inside of your house. Your house, whether you know or not, is one of the greatest tools God has given you to love other people. 
Because you know, you say, well, only family comes into my house. So when you invite strangers into your house, what are you treating them as? How are you loving them? You're right, we don't just invite anyone into our house, but as Christians, in a sense, we do. We invite them into our house that they would get to truly see us and we would be able to lavish whatever it is that we have upon them to care for them, to take care of them, to pray for them, to love on them, to give them food, to meet their physical needs, to meet their emotional needs, whatever that may be. I encourage you to know that your house is a tool given to you by God so that you would use for the mission of God and sharing the very love of Christ with others. And notice, notice the motivation the author gives us to be hospitable. He says, for thereby... Some have entertained angels. Now, if you go and listen to a a sermon on this text, or if you read any commentary, they will immediately go to Genesis 18 and 19, where Abraham and Lot, they entertained angels. And that is an example of what's being talked here. But I think first and foremost, we're supposed to go back to Hebrews chapter 1, the context of the book. Where where the author of this book, he talks about angels. And in chapter 1, verse 14, the author says, Angels are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are specifically created by God to not only worship God, but to come be his ministers here on earth to serve and to bless the church. And so what he's wanting us to know is, is he's not calling us to just be on the lookout for people with wings. But he's encouraging us to be all the more willing to open up our houses and our lives to serve strangers. For the very people we might be serving might very well be the ministers of God who have come to either serve and bless us or through us serve and bless others. And if we reject these ministers, we might very well be missing the very things that God is wanting to work in our own life. So I encourage you, how do we practice hospitality? How are you regularly opening up your life and your house to bless others? Number three, sufferers. It's a real word. I had to look it up. Sufferers, it is a noun. Verse 3 says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. As Christians, we are called to show love and mercy to those who are hurting and suffering. Now surely this refers back to chapter 10 when the church, it says that many of them, they had their property confiscated from them and it talked about some of them were even placed in prison. And so what the church was doing, it was visiting the brothers and sisters in prison identifying with those who were hurting, identifying with those who had been persecuted by the state, thereby being identified by the state as those who are also believers. So they're coming alongside other people who are hurting and suffering for the purpose of demonstrating love for them. And we can definitely look in the New Testament where we see we are certainly meant to prioritize the suffering of believers, but we're also meant to come alongside unbelievers as well and how do we meet their needs who are also hurting and suffering. And so there's two things I want to just say 
when we talk about suffering. There's a lot we could say. There's a lot we could say about all of this. I feel like you can go back and sit in this passage a lot longer, and I encourage you to do that. Number one, suffering is inevitable. We've talked about this many times throughout the, in, here in the church. But, but, but realize, suffering is inevitable. It's a grace. So again, suffering is a grace that vividly shows how finite and fragile the things of earth really are. It's regularly reminding us earth is not our treasure. That's what suffering, one of the things it does. Suffering also increases, therefore, when we understand that this earth is not our treasure, that our treasure is in heaven, and that's where we long to be with Christ for all of eternity. Um, So with that, don't pray you won't suffer. Like, don't pray that prayer. That's like praying the sun won't come up. Like, do you get that? Paul says, Acts 14, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible doesn't ever make it appear suffering might be optional. It makes it seem like it will be a requirement of every believer. So we should not pray that we will not suffer. Rather, we pray that we endure, that we press on, that we continue running the race. This is what our Ukrainian brothers and sisters need right now. They don't need us to pray that they won't suffer. They are suffering. So what happens when we do suffer? What they need is you and I coming together, not only financially, but just coming together in prayer that we would love them and we would be interceding on their behalf, asking God to give them grace, asking God to give them strength, asking God to pour forth his lavish love upon them, that they would continue to run the race, identify with Christ Jesus, and that his name would be continually proclaimed. This is what our brothers and sisters in India, you all know that we support many uh, pastors who are in in India. And when we were there and we're listening to their testimonies, they said, we do not pray that we won't suffer. These are their words. And they face martyrdom every single day. They said, just pray that we persevere. Pray that we finish well. This is what our Christians, brothers and sisters, whether they're in Ukraine whether they're in India or any other country or any part of the world or in this room, that's what we need. That we come alongside and we pray for them to persevere. That we come alongside and we demonstrate acts of love. Sometimes we're not able to go be with them, like our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now, but we can serve. And when we know brothers and sisters are going, we can equip them and furnish them with with finances and other things that they would be a blessing to our brothers and sisters. So let us make sure that we do that. Uh, Second thing to remember about suffering. Suffering can draw people away from the gospel. That's what we see in Hebrews. That's why he continues to give us these warnings about pressing on. Suffering is something Satan wants to use so that we would doubt God's goodness. We would deny his power and his provision. And so what we need to understand is that when there are those who are around us who are suffering, we don't pull away, we press forward. Don't pull away and say, hopefully someone else will do something about that. 
Just assume you are the instrument that God has placed in their life to give grace to them right now. We're called to press in to those who are suffering, into those who are hurting. This is why all throughout the Bible, all throughout Hebrews, this is what he says. Like in chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day so no one is hardened by sin. When we see someone beginning to be tempted by sin or falling into sin, we don't move back, we move towards them. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, spur one another on to do good works and do not forsake the gathering of the church. Because of, because of suffering, some people were saying, maybe it would be safer not to gather. Maybe we should just keep our arms distance. And he's saying, no, you need one another all the more. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Remember, the Christian life is like a race. And after great persecution, after a lot of suffering, sometimes we begin to slow down. Sometimes we move off the narrow path and we move over onto the wide path and we get discouraged. And so he's reminding us, no, we lock arms with our brothers and our sisters and those who are hurting and we help them to finish the race. I encourage you to spend time praying for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. It hit me this last week that I've thought about them, I've talked about them, but I hadn't spent much time praying for them. And as I was wrestling just through this verse on how we're to come alongside those who are suffering, and again, to all, whether they're believers or not, but especially believers, I realized that I had fallen very, very short there. And you might be there too where you talk about those who are hurting, but have you spent time praying for them, interceding for them, asking for God's grace to be poured out upon them? I encourage you to do so. Number four, we pray for spouses. Verse four says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So much we can say here. We know that marriage is a God-ordained institution between one man and one woman. And we know that the world, sin, Satan, and, and culture itself wants nothing more than to pervert and destroy marriage. The Bible gives us the true and ultimate purpose of marriage. Like a, a marriage between a man and a woman isn't ultimately the enjoyment of that man and woman. Like the ultimate purpose of that is that it would direct the focus back to the love Christ has for his bride, the church. That's what your marriage does. Like that ought to be encouraging and very convicting at the same time. That ought to make us all pause before we get married, right? Like do we understand this? That this marriage, a man and a woman coming together to be one flesh is to ultimately point forward to the much greater picture of the love Christ has for his church. And this is whether you are, are single, whether you're married, whether you're a widow, we are called to honor marriage with the way we speak about it, with the way we think about it, with the way we counsel others. We must guard marriage. Men, we must resist and we must fight against pornography, against lust, against adultery, against any and every form of sexual immorality. As men and women, we need to, to honor marriage with our words, with our actions. Like, I want you to think, 
Would your spouse be honored with every single word you speak about them to others? Would they be honored? Sometimes I think we are giving the world ammunition to fight against marriage by the way we speak about our spouses and by the way we speak about marriage. What else would we expect the world to say, do, or think by the way we talk about marriage? I just want you to think about that. Sometimes we just gripe, don't we? We just complain. But marriage isn't ultimately about your satisfaction and about you and your spouse. It's ultimately about helping others see the beauty of the gospel in Jesus Christ. I think... I think the world, um, the world should want the biblical worldview of marriage to be true by the way we speak about it and by the way we live, out, live it out. Even if, they, even if they don't agree with us, they should say, but, but I want that to be true because the way I see this husband and this wife, or the way I see this person preparing themselves for marriage. I want that to be true. I don't agree with it. But that is certainly something much more beautiful than anything that the world has to offer. And notice the motivation here that the author gives. He says, all who are sexually immoral and adulterous will experience God's judgment. You know, all throughout the New Testament, we read, we read, about these warnings about sexual morality, like, like Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, detestable, for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All throughout the Bible, we say, we see sexual morality results in judgment of God. And so the way these warnings the way that they're supposed to function is, imagine like you're, you're driving through the Rocky Mountains and, and you're going around the curves and, and you're on these mountains and then there's a sign as you're coming up to this curve and it says cliff. You don't then drive your car as close to the cliff as possible hoping you don't fall, but what do you do? You keep your car as far away from the cliff as possible so you don't fall. That's how these warnings function. Think of this warning. Sexual morality, if you go there, you will fall into the very judgment of God. And so he's saying, stay away from sexual morality. Run from sexual immorality. Run from pornography. Run from adultery. Run from those jokes and the ways that we can speak crassly about marriage. Run from that and honor marriage as much as we can with every word and every thought that we have. That's how these warnings are meant to function for us. Number five, our Savior. Verse five says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So let me give you two reasons why I believe this warning, it doesn't say anything about Jesus, but I believe it's specifically telling us to love Jesus more than anything else. Uh, number one, all throughout the New Testament, we see that money the love of money can be an idol that draws us away from worshiping Jesus. Example, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. He then says, you cannot serve both God and money. 
So here he says, when he says, keep your life free from the love of money, he's saying, love Jesus, don't love money. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, the author gives us, look at the reason the author gives us for contentment. He gives us an unbreakable promise of Jesus' unending presence. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The reason we don't love money and we can be content is because we have Jesus. Why can we freely give our money away and be content in all circumstances? Because we have Jesus. We have the one who satisfies our soul. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our strength. We've been given spiritual eyes. Remember, we, we experienced this new birth. Jesus now dwells within us. The Holy Spirit is pouring forth the infinitely immeasurable love of God in our hearts at all times. So now we see things as they truly are. And we look at health. We look at riches. We look at possessions. We look at our houses. And we say, those things are good. Oh, but they are not ultimate. They don't define my life. They're not what I live for. We know that none of them will ultimately last. They offer no security and no salvation and no hope. In fact, the one who holds on to riches is like the one who in an ocean holds on to an anchor. And they will sink and they will drown. The unbreakable promise of Jesus' perfect unending presence in our life is meant to free us from the love of riches, from possessions, so we'd be willing to give away all that we can. So I realized, so we, we went through five things, and, and, and rather quickly. And so there's questions that we can have, and I imagine there's many questions. There's, there's questions, there's objections that we could raise. You might say, but what about those who are hard to love? Or you might say, but you don't know what my spouse has done to me. Or he might say, well, I'm, I'm not actually made like that. I'm one of those people, I just like to say things as they are. I'm just black and white. As if to say, somehow, you're the exception to God's commands. Or you simply say, and I think this is kind of the blanket one, and I think at some point in all of our life we have said this, you just don't know my situation. You don't know my situation, why I can't love this person. You don't know my situation, why I can't open up my house. You don't know my situation, why I'm not going to love these who are hurting. You don't, you don't know my situation, why, why I don't love my spouse. You don't understand my situation, why I can't give away money in these things and these things. And, and all, I, I don't need to know your situation. Do you realize, no one needs to know your situation. They just realize that. I don't need to know it. Your person on your right or left doesn't need to know your situation because God knows your situation. Did you get that? It's not about me apprehending the difficulties or pains or hardships in your life. You have God and he knows. Look, look at where we go. Look at verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
So when you're wrestling, say, well, how do I love this person? How do I show hospitality here? How do I give away possessions and be free with money? How do I be content with, with disease and pain and hardship and all of these things? How does that happen? Because God is your helper. Isn't that incredible? Like the one who created all things, the one who we read about in, in, in Hebrews 1, he created all things. He's in the exact imprint of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. Right now, we're told he sustains all of creation with the word of his power. He's the one who says his span, the span of his hands, is the galaxies. We're told in Isaiah 40, he can hold all the waters of the, of the sea in his hand. The, the nations are like a drop in a bucket compared to his greatness and to his power. He knows your situation. He knows your hardships. He knows everything that you are facing. And he promises to be your helper. You don't need my help. You have God's help. Do you understand that? The, the beauty of that, the magnificence of that, and that, how that levels the playing field for us all? Because now none of us can say, well, I mean, you don't know, or this is a really hard situation Nothing is more difficult, nothing is too difficult that the infinite power and love and grace of our God cannot handle in your life. Jesus gives us grace to love those in the church. Jesus gives us grace to love those who are hard to love. Whenever you think, why can I love, why can I love those who suffer? Because Jesus loves me. Why can you honor your spouse and fight against porn and sexuality? Because Jesus is your helper. Why is it you can give away possessions and be content with everything you have or don't have because Jesus is your helper? Jesus promises his unending presence and unadulterated power and grace to be given to you at all times so you can love others. That's why we live a life of love. We've been saved by the God of love that we'd be born of this God. And this is how he equips us and strengthens us to love one another. And, and let me just kind of step back and put this in a little framework for you. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus has given you an unshakable foundation in a perfect kingdom, right? You have an unshakable foundation. Nothing can change your status in the family of God. Jesus then gives you, in chapter 13, verse 5, an unbreakable promise of unending presence so you can be content in every circumstance. And then he gives you an unadulterated help of infinite power and grace so you can love others at all times. We have an unshakable kingdom, unbreakable promises of unending presence, and unadulterated help from our perfect God and Father and Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? This is why when we leave here, we go out to love others. When we gather here, we gather to love others. Every time you pray, you're coming to the high priest who stands at the right hand of the Father, ready to pour forth grace to you at every single moment of the day. That's one of the beautiful truths we read as we went through Hebrews. So let me just say this. Uh, use chapter 13 one through six as your prayer guide. Think of it like that. Write down brothers and sisters that you can be praying for. 
write down those uh, who maybe, maybe uh, neighbors or coworkers or whatever that you can begin demonstrating hospitality to. Write down names of people or groups of people who are suffering, how you can come alongside and pray for them, encourage them, and strengthen them. Write down ways that you can honor your marriage or prepare yourself for marriage or pray for other people's marriages. Pray also then that possessions and health and none of those things would ever become an idol in your life or in the idol or in the lives of others as well. Pray that you regularly remember Jesus is your helper and his presence is with you at all times. He will never leave you or forsake you. So I'm going to pray, and uh, the ushers will come forward, and they'll then begin passing out communion, or you'll come forward, take communion, and then we'll take it all together at the end. Father, Father, we praise you today. Oh God, you are so, so good. Lord, you have given us unbreakable promises of your unending presence. You promise your unadulterated help to give us power and grace and strength and mercy. Father, I pray that we would never, ever forget these truths and that we would know that, Father, you are in us to work through us, that we would display your love to everyone we encounter, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, suffering or not. God, may we live lives of love. Grow us in our understanding of the gospel. Help us to be supremely satisfied in your son, Jesus. May we see that he is the one who truly satisfies our heart and our soul and our every longing. And God, bless this time as we now take communion. In your name, Jesus, amen.